This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to The Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known guests about their lives, their careers and negotiating and navigating those difficult moments along the way. I'm Giles Paley-Phillips and in my bedroom where I record opposite me on the screen is Jim Daly. Hello, in my cabin where I record all my podcasts and a very cold cabin today. It is, I mean, it's not yet, this is going to come out, I think mid-October it's not even October yet as we're recording it's the last few days of September and it's freezing it is winter has arrived very early also it's misleading isn't it because outside it's you know I went I said I said to you earlier I went for a walk this morning and in the sunshine it was really warm but in the shade it was freezing yeah it's yeah I just felt it walking up my garden I just suddenly I had you know like um Around Christmas time, you get that Christmassy feeling, you know. It, well, the crispness in the air. The Christmas in the air, yeah. Everything about it makes you give that Christmassy. You're probably looking at decorations and you, you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But you I think joy on people's faces and <laughs> the yeah. uh, as they dance through the snow, as they um, as they clamber around the shops finding presents and gifts for yeah. their loved ones. And they're singing uh, carols around the big tree in the center of town holding hands and wishing each other yeah tidings whatever you do around christmas or if you don't celebrate christmas you know you know yeah you do you do you um but i got a bit of that not the christmas evening but that wintry feeling just by walking up my garden you know you know i couldn't describe it but i suddenly thought oh i'm, I'm in winter oh. Oh. 
I mean, uh, yeah. Whoa, I almost did that. Whoa. This is why I should be doing more acting. So you sort of did like a, a slight horse sound. I did no, yeah. I did. I did then. Yeah. Uh, maybe I did actually at the time. Yeah, I did. I just felt. I just felt wintry. Is what I'm trying to. Mm. I'm trying to say. And, and I feel like we've, we've been slightly robbed of autumn a little bit this year. Well, I was thinking it's quite autumnal today, actually, because I remember going out for this walk and I remember seeing quite a few leaves over on the floor starting to gather now and the sun's out. And I do like those sort of sunny autumnal days where it is a bit colder. You can wear a bit more clothing, mm. uh, but it's still kind of there's a bit of, you know, brightness in the air. There's, there's blue sky. Well, there is still. still yeah, it's not, here there isn't any blue skies. It's very grey, but there's quite a lot of green on the trees still. So, and, mm. you know, and, and actually those orangey leaves as well. So. Yeah, autumn is here kind of autumn is here in in kind of aesthetics, but not in feeling. It feels wintry. This feels like a very British conversation to start the <laughs> podcast does. off. Like talking about the fucking weather. Sorry. It does. It does. But I I'll just yeah, that's how I'm feeling right now. But weathery. Cold and wintry. <laughs> I'm gonna go and have I'm gonna go and I might go and have like a hot chocolate or something. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, have a nice hot chocolate. Myself You've got some marshmallows some you can put in? Can't have marshmallows because they're not vegetarian. Of course, they've got so annoying. Yeah. Just make some vegetarian. Make do they not do vegan? Vegan marshmallows? Probably, probably, yeah. But like the average ones off the shelf, and not all got um, gelatin, isn't it? In it, Gel- something, something like that. Mm. For God's sake, you don't need it. Just sorry, there I must be an equivalent gelatin. to gelatin that's not from a animal product. Quite. <sighs> vegan. Anyway, look, you you introduce our guest. I want to Google vegan <laughs> marshmallows. <laughs> Um, well, he's an absolutely outstanding guest, and I don't say that lightly. It's um, the wonderful Rob Rinder, who a lot of people will know from the Judge Rinder show, which was yep. kind of, I guess, was his first kind of um, move into broadcasting. He's has, had a very successful career as a barrister before that. Um, and I think, as we talked earlier, he was kind of, although he was... Um, sort of played it down a little bit. He was into acting and stuff at a younger age, and 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 was thinking about doing that. But obviously, then got into law and and education was a big thing for him, and becoming quite academic, getting into law, becoming a practicing barrister, and then you know just happenstance that he he, he got into TV and broadcasting, and the the Judge Rinder show was created. And off the back of that, obviously, he does a lot more stuff now. He's um, often presents on. Um, GMB with alongside people like Susanna Reid and Charlotte Hawkins, a, a previous guest on the podcast, yes. and uh, yeah, does lots of broadcast work and has done shows about his ancestry and the Holocaust. Which as you know, grew, um, he's a Jewish guy that grew up in um, Southgate, as I Southgate, Southgate yeah. if I called it, yeah, from in a Jewish right, community, yeah. and uh, yeah, so he obviously talks about that very openly as well. But I mean, it, it was a fascinating conversation, wasn't it, Jim? Um, we haven't done an epic one for a while, and we and I kind of we, we were, thought we were on a bit of a, a you know time schedule with um, Rob. It turned out we were just part of his procrastination from writing, um, so it meant that we 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 talked for ages, and it was fantastic. Oh, it's absolutely absolutely fascinating, fascinating individual, and uh, here I have to admit, you know, slight slight, slight sort of uh, naivety for me, like I, 
I wasn't, I wasn't, I know the show Judge Rinder, I've watched it a lot and it's a great show. I wasn't necessarily sure if one, he was a real judge or it was, it was acting. Or oh, two, okay. You thought they, oh, right. You know I mean, and so, but obviously like within two minutes of meeting, you, you realize, oh, this is someone that's devoted his life to law and being a barrister and, and is an absolute, not just an expert in it, but cares deeply about it and, 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 yeah, a lot of that comes across. We talk about empathy a lot, and 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 it, it's fascinating hearing his journey, how to get into it, and some of the stories he's told us. And you know, a slight trigger warning: it does get quite emotional at some points. Mm. It talks about some some fairly heavy cases and stuff. Obviously, not in details because you know you, you can't a lot of time. But um, really, really interesting individual, and just uh, a very warm person as well. Mm. Which we talked about that you know working in law as well, and and how that affects uh, affects you after heavy cases. So. Yeah, just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person and uh, absolutely fascinating stories. Uh, and I ask a very silly question about uh, wigs as well. So it, yeah. I feel like this episode's got everything. It's got wigs. Uh, it's got it's got law and order. It's got yeah. TV. I mean, it what is. It's like want? a, yeah. It's the sort of. There's a thing. bit about Strictly. There is. Uh, Strictly's in it as well. I mean, goodness, we've got everything. We literally have yeah. everything. Uh, no, it was a fascinating conversation. And I think I would, you know, but I think it's fair to say we can say this. I think Rob is a is quite a modest guy in in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, he's he, yeah. he he kind of batted back your um, your uh, idea around empathy and how he's an empathetic person. And I think you know, and I think that like I, I've spoken to Rob a few times on social media and stuff, and he is he's he's actually very modest and and kind of restrained about what he does and everything. And um, again. That, makes him the person he is and he's yeah it's just wonderful company to be around yeah and in fact there's a really, I'll, I'll say this in the, in the outro actually there's a really interesting bit he said about the show in particular which is really nice i'll, I'll say it say if the mm. outro um but but judge rinder is huge i mean it's 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 you know it's a real sort of leader in in a lot of reality tv uh that kind of genre um it's essentially the uk version of judge judy which is a huge show in the, in the u.s and in fact i believe that she has praised him for the way the show is done so it, it's yeah, he's a real sort of legend of, of of TV. So not only was it an honour to have him on the podcast, but to hear his story and really connect to him for an hour and a half, it was, yeah, a genuine honour. So yeah, we really thank him very much. And I think we should probably get into it. We really should. Okay, so this is uh, the one and only, the absolute legend, Rob Rinder on the Blank Podcast. <laughs> Your, 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 whatever your beautiful great. <laughs> no, everything's good we just had the midwife round and uh right. just going over a few bits and stuff and very very helpful so we're having You're a doing home, it at birth. home yeah oh, are, you, are you getting like, doing the water thing as well yeah yeah Ooh. so, so you can pool. are you going to be sitting by the pool with a net yep <laughs> <laughs> to collect, oh, to collect debris in this, i love that i'm the gay person so only i actually understand <laughs> the biology of how it works <laughs> Um, anyway, it sounds well. Congratulations in advance. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, Robin, it's such wonderful um, news to have you on the 
podcast because I've been wanting to get you on for ages and I'm really grateful for you giving us some of your time today. Well, it's a total gift. Love it. Well, it's it's our, no, it's a well, it's a present from from you to us, and we're we're very grateful to receive it. Um, this we normally start this podcast by sort of going back to our guests' early kind of lives, and obviously you uh-huh. you grew up in London, you were born in London, you brought up in Southgate, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and you said it perfectly. You're the first person that said it with the right degree of Amy. Uh, Winehouse tastic twang, Safgate. <laughs> Safgate. How I actually sound, if you know what I mean. Like if you go back to where I'm from, nobody sounds like me. My, you know, my my voice sounds like I've been mugged by a Mitford. Yeah, which, it does um, a little. Yeah. So what? Yeah. So um, yeah. what was like? What was growing up in Southgate like? Was it? Was it? You know? Was it a good time? Um, was it a good time? I mean, um, sorry, it's so funny. Whilst you're on the phone, I'm getting um, questions about um, uh, uh, an issue involving some sort of uh, criminal offence that my one of my pupils needs advice on. It's an odd segue. I just uh, that that's why I'm not answering the question. <laughs> no worries. So where you can't switch, you can't. Actually, it's an important point. You can't focus on people because there's a constant perpetual invasion of outside sort of, and somebody's listening to your podcast why just turn it off i don't know how is the answer to that anyway you haven't come back to your question um was it a good time that's such a difficult question to answer in that way it's like saying so tell me about your childhood and where you grew up i mean don't get me wrong that would be the first question i have on a day you know tell me about your early childhood pain just why i'm not in a relationship and haven't been for a really long time because i don't have any small talk um yeah, I I have as you you heard like I go back to the glottal stop of Southgate when you say it. I I have a lot of love for the place, um, you know, in a kind of societal sense. It was a posh way of saying it, it was a community, and it was a kind of I suppose what you'd now call, but I feel sort of conscious or self conscious using this language sort of working class community to an important extent my dad was a taxi driver you know we lived around these sort of four roads and everybody went to the local state schools so i certainly did osage school um curious mix of people that have gone on to do extraordinary things from osage school you know same year as rachel stevens still a very good friend from s club and you know, wow. a few years younger um amy winehouse who turned out to be an extraordinary poetess and, and her dad and my dad knew each other it was that sort of thing, and a real blended community, lots of first, second generation uh, British people. So there's lots of big Jewish community, but also big Hindu community and uh, certainly very Greek Cypriot. And we all played and coexisted alongside one another, kind of cheek to jowl, um, kids playing out at night uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and... To, to, to that extent, now as I get older and look back at the gift of that childhood and all of its kind of community freedoms, the fact that there was safety by virtue of this kind of sense of neighbourliness in a suburb of London, you know, I, I really appreciate that now as a grown up looking at perhaps some of the childhoods that my friends' kids are having. But it didn't come without its own, you know, complexities. I, I would have prayed to be anywhere else when I was then. You know, when I was young then, I, I, I didn't suit the condition of, of working class Southgate or childhood uh, terribly well. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was little and my mum, extraordinary person in, in, in every way imaginable, most especially in her limitless capacity for kind of emotional, intellectual and cultural openness and growth. 
which is a good thing on one hand, but a disaster when you get older, you want to write some sort of painful autobiography. Woman's deprived me of the first good four chapters of any, you know, <laughs> any book. What can I say? But like real deal stuff. Yeah. And she ended up starting a small business from in fact the the upstairs in our house. And it, it became an extraordinary success. But you know, when I talk about working class Southgate now, it, it, it's quite difficult for people who live there now because it's become a suburb of excuse me, become a, a suburb of Muswell Hill, which is dead posh. Mm. So the houses now where I grew up, you know, go for loads of money. Like it would be unthinkable when I was little. Uh, but there was that, that sort of community spirit, at the same spirit, at the same time, you know, in my house by, you know, virtue of my dad and I, the kind of, this word lived experience is now so being denigrated, but it's so worth reflecting and breathing in. In other words, the experiences that have led my mum to be her and my dad to be him, you know, the complex range of ingredients that produced the parenting that they gave me. Um, because of those um, experiences, you know, um, there were all sorts of things now that I wish I'd had. And at the time, I remember wishing I, I, I had you know, access to kind of what you might loosely describe as kind of culture and books and music and all of that sort of stuff. And I used to go to, you know, these posh houses like Hatfield House. I couldn't believe I was being taken home when you know, I, I should have lived there. You know, I had like, I had like the reverse version of imposter syndrome. You know, that and this sort of deep urging to, to be some species of minor royal and go to a boarding school. So on the one hand, you know, as I retrospectively look back and think about the real gifts um, and actually a, a, a number of advantages, some of them that have emerged during the course of my professional life coming from that community, uh, I also reflect that it wasn't necessarily purely a happy experience. Bear in mind the time that uh, I was growing up in, and of course the kind of insular nature of that community as well, especially the Jewish community that I came from. But just to give you an example of what I mean by one of the gifts. I was thinking about this the other day. I, I remember when I started at the bar, you'd have to learn very quickly. I'm not sure if it's still the case whether they still do this. Um, you, you'd learn the racial classifications of when they. Uh, uh, you do a witness state. So someone is an ICT1 male, that might mm -hmm. mean Caucasian male, and they're all, yeah. they're all variously categorised. Um, and it's not true, and it never will be true to say, I don't see colour, I don't see green people, or yellow, there, there are no green people, right? It, 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 it is an experience that you have, but if you grow up, I think, in London, in a genuinely um, culturally blended community, it does... I think interfere with your uh, emotional and I suppose intellectual chemistry in this regard. It's not that you don't see that sort of thing. It's just not the first thing you see. Mm. So I remember, you know, 20 years ago when I first started getting a bit, uh, well, not being very good at that and thinking, well, why isn't there a category for ICT 10 tall and hot? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be like the first thing you could do. You know what I mean? Oh, he's hot. I mean, it's not to say you don't notice it's a person of colour or whatever, but it's definitely not what's happening first in our community. In our community, what was valued more is the people that are up the street. You know, my mum was you know, much more anxious that I would play alongside this Nigerian family because they were doctors rather than even the Jewish people down the street because, you know, he'd spent some time in prison. Mm. You're not going to say who that was. That, that was a much more important thing, you know. Do. But um, so as I say, I, mean, I haven't put that terribly eloquently or terribly clearly. I think you know, when you ask people or invite them back to that difficult question of what was it like, 
you know, it's such a a sort of mixed picture of uh, a, a sort of pick and mix of emotional experiences, many of which are good, some of which are are, are bad. Uh, and depending on how you're feeling on any particular day when you're asked that question depends on the sweet that you you chew on, right? Yeah, completely. And I think with age as well, we get older, we get more kind of retrospective and and, and look at things that happen to us and, and how they form meaning in our life currently. Uh, and I think that's good. I think it's healthy to do that. And we do a lot of that on, on this podcast. But I'm just wondering, you sort of hinted at it. Did, did you just sort of feel like you didn't sort of fit in then at that time? Or, or maybe, maybe no kids? Yeah. Like no, I think I think it's a really good question about no kids. I think all kids come to a moment of not fitting or, or wanting to. That's part of the, the reach into a community. And, you know, often my God kids and look around and say, you know, just just be patient. You'll find your people, your mm-hmm. community. That that's a, yeah. a, a, a always a sort of important message. Um, again, it's so hard as a grown up, isn't it, to kind of unpick what I'm doing now. Whether I'm retrospectively projecting, you know, grown up Rob and thinking about how I felt then yeah. to be authentic, or, or whether at the time I felt especially out of place. Yeah, I think back then it was nothing more than a kind of intuitive series of instincts, you know, a, 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 a gradual realisation that I was gay, for instance, a gradual realisation. It certainly in my case didn't come at sort of one moment of epiphany and I wasn't, you know, watching Dynasty and went, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Although, as we'll come on to discuss that, I think inevitably informed some of my shame around that. But um, I, I think for me, um, I definitely felt an instinctive, indescribable, ephemeral sense of otherness or a, an envy, if you like, is the best way of perhaps articulating it, uh, towards other people who are having what we would now perhaps describe as more privileged existence, existences, but nevertheless, or lives. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I know lots of those people's lives and they would have swapped with me in a heartbeat. Mm. You know what I mean? I, 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 mates from mine who grew up in North Oxford, loads of dusty books trying to love, or, you know, piano playing and you know, all of the stuff that, and that is now sort of part of the things that I've come, you know, to grow into loving that they were imbibed with from childhood. And all they wanted to do was be, you know, going out to, to Ibiza <laughs> and uh, and having sort of families that were pleased and you know definitely um, uh, uh, part of no more than part of they were an engine and a and, and a critical influence on them doing well in school that mattered but nevertheless you know what I mean they weren't sort of sending them to academic hothouses so it, it's that it's a, a thing where I, I certainly felt from a very early age instinctively like I was a bit of a flamingo perhaps in a sea of um, less exotic birds. Giles, bonjour, mon ami, ça va? Jim, what is this <laughs> French I'm you're talking, talking to? I'm talking French. Do you like it? I do. I like it very much. Thank uh, you, very. thank you. How long have you been talking French? Well, not that long, because I've been using... 50 coffee breaks books to help me learn my French uh, in a fun way um, and when I can because I'm a busy guy like you you're a busy guy but it's hard to find the time sometimes but uh, I've been using 50 coffee breaks and I think you can you can agree that my French so far is très bien 
It's excellent. I, I, I've never had much of an aptitude to lang- learning languages, so it's exciting to hear how you've been getting on with coffee breaks. Do you find it hard then to find the time to kind of learn a language or, or do or, or improve yourself in, in that way? Absolutely. I think time's probably the key thing. And uh, also having that um, level of courage because i used to find it very difficult at school to learn languages yeah well 50 coffee breaks makes it really easy it's quick it's fun you can do it in your downtime alongside a cup of coffee i've been finding it really easy as well um to pick up and it makes you feel good about yourself makes you feel like you're improving yourself so yes for me it's been trade trabian well so i can see for 15 years coffee break languages has helped make it possible for millions of people to learn a language in a way that fits in with their everyday life whether that's while waiting at the airport sitting on a train or even just having a coffee break or waiting for their podcast friend to turn up before a podcast recording yeah so i've i've been learning lots of (laughs) i could learn lots of languages (laughs) waiting for you This is the thing, like we all lead busy lives, so you know, you don't get a lot of time, but this 50 coffee breaks makes it very easy to do it whatever downtime you have, uh, whether it's 5, 10, 15 minutes, it's broken down into chunks and you can, whether you're a really busy person who's got more time, then, then, then you can learn a language, you know, and there's 50 varied and lively activities that keep making it fun, you know, it doesn't feel like being at school, it just feels like a fun activity that you're helping to improve yourself. There's, there's anagrams, idiom challenges, recipes and quotations, they're created for high beginner to intimate adult and young adult learners and designed to keep you motivated while building your skills in key areas. Uh, For example, reading comprehension. Writing skills. Grammar confidence. Translation abilities. Vocabulary expansion. And cultural awareness. Yeah, quite a few things to, to, to improve on. It's really quite impressive how quickly you can pick it up. And, you know, by practicing the new language, as I said, in a fun and relaxed way, in the time that you have, you know, you make it specific to you, then it's easy to stay on track to achieve your learning, uh, your language learning aspirations rather than getting too stressed about getting too ahead. You do it in your time. And I think that's the best way. We've said on this podcast before, haven't we? That is the best way to learn a new skill, pick up a language if you're doing it in time that's relatable to you and your life rather than trying to be stressed about anything else. So, you know, pick up your favourite cup of tea. We've t- and we've talked before about different blends on this podcast. So find your favourite blend, pick up a 50 Coffee Breaks book, and it just makes learning a language pleasant and a productive part of your day. Yeah, you can enjoy your coffee bake accompanied by an expert teacher and start practising your language skills in a flexible, fun and relaxed way. Yeah, and as I said, it features 50 varied and lively activities to keep you motivated, which I think is the important thing, and build your skills at the same time. Yeah, make language learning the most pleasant and productive part of your day. I have. I can absolutely say that I have. And what languages are available, Jim? They've got French, German, Spanish, and Italian. So plenty to choose from. I'm doing French at the moment. And I'm very much enjoying it. And I'm looking forward to maybe, you know, who knows, taking my skills to France one day and uh, putting them to the test. Maybe we could do a podcast in French. <gasps> that would be fantastic. Yeah. Bonjour. Bienvenue à Le Blanc Podcast. That's how we'd start it. Very nice. So where can we get hold of these products, Jim? Well, if you visit www.amazon.co.uk slash 50 coffee breaks that's 550 the number's 50 and then coffee breaks all one word uh, then you can learn more about the series and pick the language that's right for you yeah turn your downtime into do time <laughs> do you think that in a way that's something we all go through that we all certainly when we're younger 
but also when older, we all just want what other people have. We all just, I don't know, yeah. see other people and think, actually, that's that's more me. Maybe. I don't know. I'm so anxious nowadays to not speak for other people. You know, obviously yeah, my yeah, favourite yeah. book that's, uh, well, it's a thoughtful one, isn't it? You know, I, I reread To Kill a Mockingbird a lot. Mm-hmm once every couple of years I say a lot because how often do you read a book more than once but that's the only book that I do come back to and its central message is to invite empathy by doing the physical act really yeah. we're not actually grabbing nicking someone's shoes and standing them but actually doing the work and trying to be inside somebody and to imagine the world from their their perspective so I think that's an increasingly difficult thing to do I think it is a I, I suspect you're probably right that we all have an element within us at various times in our life where we look towards the lives of others, um, either because they have more wealth or because they have more uh, uh, seeming love, they have more things that you cover at that particular time. And um, you know, it, it, it inevitably, that's something that you envy. But I think that there are certain people and I, I i can certainly speak for me the question of for me not just not fitting in but there's a sense in which you find yourself being born on without making the choice of where you're born without having chosen what community you're born into and when you're little feeling never quite like you fit in it's not necessarily the sense of reaching towards another community just more an intuitive sense that you don't belong necessarily in this one in other words, you haven't yet found, as I like to say, your humans. Yeah. Mm. I was just thinking there about, you know, we were talking about envy and comparison and stuff. And obviously we live in a, a world that's where those things are exacerbated via things like social media. And yeah. I do wonder whether, because of those algorithms, that we are creating an, a society that is just about comparing and yeah. invigilating and, and and visualizing other people's kind yeah. of lives and wanting those lives and and how yeah. dangerous that is yeah i mean envy is kind of lethal to inner peace it's the kind of halitosis of the soul that i mean it'll do more enduring violence to friendship to your sense of presence and to your capacity to find real presence and joy than anything else will that's why it's one of the deadly sins that you go yeah i'm definitely into that one yeah, so yeah. last well, yeah i can do that but sloth then, but um yeah. right sloth i mean i mean but when you've got a toy or stuff you know, yeah 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 you know, there's, no, there's no tractors or you can't phone someone i mean i've got no transferable skills but um yeah on so many levels that that's true but it doesn't just start at social media. You know, we've got to stop um, looking at social media as the problem. Humankind has created this thing and exacerbated this thing. Now, it, its capacity to do enduring, permanent and problematic emotional violence, its ability, Twitter, for instance, to disproportionately curate the content of the cultural and political conversation is undoubtedly damaging to say the um the the, the very least um th- th- that's that's for sure and and i think you know twitter has 
a, a number of problems, not least the noise that it generates that persuades the world that humankind is bad, mm-hmm. wicked and evil. You know, this is a long answer to your question, but um, I, I want, I hope at some point to talk about some of the people I used to meet and represent who, you know, would now, in fact, were then prosecuted for hate crimes and being alongside them, touching the face quite literally in some cases of that hate um, has enabled me to kind of be free of any of the effects of Twitter. And when it comes to sort of Instagram and all of those other social media spaces, you're right. But I come back to the beginning of what I was going to say, that humankind created this. It, it, It clearly itches a deeply even quasi-spiritual urge, as a posh way of saying, it's answering something that we have a thirst and need for. And that is to look at other people and go, oh, you know, your life is better than mine, knowing little about it. And it starts at a really basic level about, I think, demanding us all to do, well, what do I appreciate about my life first? Mm. And, um, you know, I think if you're the type of person that goes on social media, and by the way, type of person, I think it's huge numbers of us. We're all human beings with our own flaws and limitations, to say the very least, but looks at somebody else's life and thinks, God, I wish that was me in a way, which is, I'd love to do that one day. Isn't that wonderful? As opposed to, oh God, I wish it was me. Those are two different things. And the second, God, I wish it was me, that sense of what you might describe as aggressive envy is the most problematic one and i do think it's the presence of these false images images where people curate their lives and deliberately present them in an edited fashion only to demonstrate the upsides or actually it also or or the extremists of perhaps even the midst of their tragedy so it all looks like drama in some capacity beautifully curated and so on and so forth you know the bottom line is i think in those circumstances um if you're the type of person that looks at that and goes i could actually and i'm gonna i'm gonna withdraw what i said we are the type of people that look at that and go you know i wish that was me i i think we have to be increasingly mindful of that but i've said you know i think i've written quite a bit about this about you know it invites us to think about what sort of friends we are what sort of people we are. Now, uh, it's not my view. It's a view that's sort of echoed increasingly. When you ask yourself, what person, who are your friends? I, I, I'm always sort of yeah, aggressively, um, what's the word? I, proselytizing, I suppose. To uh, my God, kids to ever, you know, your friends are not the people that are there in the middle of the night. Of course, they should be and, and could be and must be in the event of a real drama. But there's also people that will crowbar themselves in just to be sort of, you know, the person that's cool so that they could be present. They're a particular brand of person that enjoys being the needed one. And yes, they can be good too, but it's really the people who delight in the truth of your success. It's people who really know you that the ones who ultimately have the greatest value to you in friendship and i suppose to, to some extent what social media does does is is perhaps interfere with that it dials up this sort of idea that a life can be depicted in a series of edited pictures when you know nothing of that person's pain you know nothing of that person's day-to-day life 
So what you do is you project this sort of idea of romanticized otherness and then cover that. What you're actually doing is looking at a mirage and drinking the poisonous sand. Um, so yeah, that's a long-winded answer to your question. I think it's doing it has problems, but it we created it so we can increasingly find ways, I think, of talking about it and learning how to it can't be disinvented. No. About how we can use it uh, for positive good. And I do think it has the power to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you touched on sort of your work on some of the cases you worked on. I, I, I definitely want to come on to them because they sound interesting. And I love the idea that that being close to that kind of hate has sort of helped you deal with on social media. That's really fascinating. But really quickly, just going back to yeah. acting, I think acting initially was the plan, wasn't it? And it's it's funny talking to you, like you're, you're coming across with so much empathy and as an empathetic person. And I, I really want to ask about how that works in working in law and applying to cases and stuff. Cause actually I, this might be very unfair, but I feel like a lot of the time, uh, all barristers, judges, magistrates, whatever, all sort of take out the empathy uh, uh, from from their work, and and I wonder how hard that was. But just going back to sort of acting initially, I guess maybe that was the plan, and and I feel like maybe that's maybe where your empathy comes from as well, because it's helpful in that world. I don't know about that. I mean, some of the famous actors I know and non-famous actors and the least empathetic people in the world. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> you, you, you've met them. <laughs> so, I mean, or they sort of, it's not the same thing to, to mimic empathy or to, mm-hmm. you don't have to be empathetic I think, to stand physically in the body of another person, actually. I think, I mean, some of them would, would perhaps say otherwise, but that's perhaps the reason why a, a number of great actors, great artists, can sometimes be profoundly monstrous people, certainly susceptible to all of the negative forces that fame might bring them. I'm not speaking, I must emphasise, and I must be clear about anybody I know personally, yeah, yeah. but, um, you know, this business that interferes with your emotional chemistry more than anything else, you know, you start out in a, I don't know, on a job on Heartbeat, the next minute you're Kim Jong-un from North Korea, which is your first <laughs> big gig. Um, so I'm not sure empathy is necessarily, you know, held by the acting community, much as I love them all very much. Um, but no, I didn't really do, I think this acting thing is like somehow it's it's meandered its way. I don't know how. It's because, um, you know, blessed Wikipedia allows anybody to edit it. But I did do National Youth Theatre. And, and, and that was only, a, I did a couple of seasons. The problem is I wasn't that good. I could fake it. Right. And that's a lot of my career, as it turns out, you know, especially in my early life. And I've always felt like an imposter, but it's actually there, you know, I was 14 and yeah, I could read Shakespeare and be a bit persuasive. But I don't know, excuse me, I'm not sure what time this goes out in the warning. I didn't, want, I didn't know <laughs> what swear, the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, anything. I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I could do it. I could do an actor, so I could do a scene from Kez and sort of like vaguely intuitively understand it. But it's no empathy. Yeah, am I doing, you know, Mark, I think I was doing the scene as uh, Brutus, Act 3, Scene 1, right? You know, Friends, Countrymen, Love. I know what it's like to stand there as 14. <laughs> That's an empathy uh, uh, about it. But but um, I wasn't just very good. And I think what happened, is, and it is a true story, and I've told it a lot, but it is absolutely true. When I got to uni and... Um, I thought I'd give it another go because I actually didn't have a happy experience, even though I really love National Theatre now. I, it wasn't a good time, um, ultimately. I, I don't look back on my limited time there with um, you know, unfettered happiness. 
um, to be honest. But then I sort of, you know, really fell in love for the first time with learning when I was about 16, because a very influential teacher in a really inverted commas serious way. Mm. And um, so I thought, well, I go to union and give a give it a go. And I read for the same part as somebody else. I, I thought it was okay. You know, I thought it was okay. I thought it was great. But it was okay. And the next person went and read the same thing, and it just sounded different, but different in a way where it was like, yeah, that's it. That's like an actor doing mm. it. That's a grown up. That that word grown up, which is like I love somehow. I, I use it a lot. Um, that, that's somebody that's fully formed in their talent as a way I would now understand. But then I thought, oh well, that's that's a real deal. And it was Benedict Cumberbatch, right? And, and he was brilliant. And I just sort of not because of that, but just sort of you know withdrew from acting at that point. So I'm not sure acting necessarily gave me any sense of empathy. I think what mattered was coming from a home where. You know, my mum was constantly emotionally curious and evolving and becoming a businesswoman, coming out of a community that contained her. And she was open and was meeting, you know, forget she was divorced in her late 20s, new friends, becoming a business person. I mean, it's impossible to overstate when you retrospectively look at where that arrived, her, her journey. Sorry to use that language, but it was important arrived from to where it ended up that because I was I was imbibing that that my sense of empathy and openness really derives from coming from a house and a family where that was required it it, it was part of the kind of atoms at home I think maybe I also think people have a greater or lesser talent for it or a gift perhaps for it more than more than others for some people it takes a little while to sort of learn the choreography and for others perhaps you know because it exists in the house like culture or art or language you know it, it comes as sort of a natural dynamic of your personality maybe i don't know but i don't think acting was necessarily the, uh, the key to it all no that, that's that's very interesting so so and then obviously going into working in law um yeah. was that something that was desired is that a plan? No, I didn't bloody know. I was different <laughs> now. You know, it's so different now. I've really had to readjust the way in which I speak to, you know, young people coming to the bar. What I mean by that is, you know, as I say, I, I've really, you know, my friends, so many of them are, are parents. And they're not necessarily a variety, a rich sort of buffet of different sorts of parenting styles. But they, one thing they have in common is they're all anxious and worried in yeah. about different things in different ways at different moments but this is all unified worried about this moment you know will my does my child is, is my child sort of you know hitting the mark so to speak will they do the hoop jumping and even the ones that pretend that they're not worried of really alternative about the hoop jumping still worried about the hoop jumping, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. and i'm like oh do it you know you are you can't that you know especially i mean come back talk about envy around being a parent you know as a somebody outside even the people i know that are perhaps the most balanced and the most present but there's nothing that can trigger that sense of envy more than being a uh, some sort of party where people start talking about their kids and if people are in partnerships with kids you know the partners are catching eyes going hang on a second why isn't my one speaking fluent mandarin <laughs> you know that that's the sort of degree yeah. of envy when it's for your children as opposed to yourself that you yeah. can that seems to me to be that's not necessarily toxic but certainly it, you, it is incurable I, I i don't know 
Um, I, I'm, I'm not a parent, so, but I see it and watch it. Getting kids off screens can lead to major family rows and sometimes some blank moments. Mm-hmm. We all know it needs to be managed. Everyone's seen those ads, but no one wants to be their kid's worst enemy. Now, Jim, do you ever wish that you could find something that the entire family could enjoy reading together? Um, only all the time. I mean, I mean, my, my child's only three and she's already glued to her iPad, um, which makes me feel like an absolutely uh, horrendous parent. And like, I would say as well, I completely agree. You never want to be the, the, your child's worst enemy, but sometimes you feel like you sort of have to be. So finding something sort of in between that everyone can get involved in. I mean, that's that's the dream, I think, as a parent, isn't it? That like everyone, something everyone can enjoy. But I mean, it is, it is hard finding kids uh, gifts, especially sort of like your boy's age, sort of eight to 12. Like it can be difficult, can't it? I mean, yeah. Where do you go from there? Well, it is tricky, and screens are so addictive. So, you know, what do you do? What can we What can we suggest to our listeners? Well, I've got actually the perfect thing. Um, Aquila, full of bright ideas for curious minds. Aquila, spelled A-Q-U-I-L-A, isn't just a fun and educational monthly magazine. It's a club for bright and inquisitive kids who love to take on new challenges. Charles, this sounds great. Oh, it's a fantastic magazine. I have to say, I've had the honour of writing for Aquila from time to time. And it, yeah, it, it's not one of those magazines that does the cheap plastic tat on the front. Oh, yeah. You, yeah do you know the ones I mean? Yeah. You know, that kind of stick on promotional toys and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, that you lose after two minutes and then it's like somewhere in the living room in five pieces. Yeah, and ends up on landfill. Yeah. Instead, they're all about fascinating articles, plus genuinely challenging puzzles, craft activities, short stories written by some of the UK's leading children's authors and myself. <laughs> and the whole family can get involved with the fun. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah, Aquila, it's not available in newsagents. Uh, so to start your 12-month subscription, you go to aquila.co.uk. That's www.aquila.co.uk. And if you type in the promo code blank. Pod, that's all one word, you get 20% off. Uh, that's a great deal. It's an amazing deal. And do you know what's even better, Jim? Aquila is delivered in 91 countries worldwide, so you can receive your subscription wherever you're listening to this podcast. I can't wait. I can't wait to... Uh, to and as to... we know, we're big in Cuba. We are big in Cuba. Exactly. This sounds absolutely brilliant. And I love the deal as well uh, for our listeners. So subscribe today at Aquila uk. that's A-Q-U-I-L-A.co.uk slash blank pod. That's aquila.co.uk slash blank pod. But no, I, 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 the reason I throat clear with that story is because I was sort of fairly, not sort of average B plus C, I suppose, as a, as a, as a student. And then... When I got to sixth form college, about fifteen, maybe a little bit young, I I, um, I fell in love with with learning because of one teacher who um, told me I was clever. Mm. I mean, it was as simple as that. In fact, you know, she's probably changed more lives than 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 than, than I'm aware of. But I know because I've met a couple of people, not least. Um, I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. Um, I uh, there was a woman at the BBC. I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen since we were at Sixth Form College together, but her name came up. I recognised her. We were like mates at Sixth Form College. And I sounded 
like this, you know, I, I, since I was probably about four or five. But she does not, does uh, this particular, uh, she was then a commissioner. She's a beautiful human being as well. But anyway, um, she walked in, and I suspect part of her reputation in the BBC and wherever space she works in is a bit like, you know, she's a ballsy working class girl, what made good? Mm-hmm. So she walks in, I go, oh, darling, I haven't seen you since college. <laughs> Everyone looks around, I go, what? <laughs> She, I mean, they thought she, you know, like worked behind the Queen Vic. You know, got <laughs> she got an asthma on the way to running the anyway. <laughs> but she too was very influenced powerfully by this particular teacher. And um, so I guess what I did, I got to university, took really the learning seriously and loved it. And, and there's nothing quite like somebody else, a grown up, that word again, somebody who you respect, who's fully formed, who's presence in the world is one that you reach to and aspire for um that tells you you're good at something it has the capacity to i think more than anything else completely radically change the complexion of you it's almost as if somebody like reaches in and re-knits your own kind of tapestry back so that's what she did for me so i got really good at studying and like got first and did debating at university and because I was doing debating, the next thing to do was like become a barrister because I'm quite good at it. And I suspect there was a sense of, well, even if I was a bit curious about doing other things, because um, I was gay, there was also this other element that in the back of my mind at the forefront, knowing that I would never be permanently ostracized, but knowing it was always going to be a really difficult thing for my family to cope with, um, not because of the necessarily that that being gay was bad although of course that was part of their baggage but also because of the fundamental loss that they would experience not least my mum in the romanticized narrative of what she wanted for me as a son and what she projected and expected Mm. right she'd imagine I was gonna you know marry a girl and usual thing and have kids Mm. and so when you're a parent you've got to let go of that because the next minute you're gay, right? So you have to grieve this whole narrative, the whole novel, this whole movie you've written for your own kids, right? And you're doing that. I came out in 2001 or 2000, whatever it was. And at that time, it was also terrorism of um, 2000 of, 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 well, this is going to end badly. You know, ultimately, uh, he's going to be ostracized, AIDS, you, you name it. And, and again, that's the things that they imbibe. So reason I say that is because I suspect part of my reason is going to the bar was in part, just to be clear, I'm talking about being a barrister but working behind the bar, um, was, was that, was that I, I knew that it would cushion the blow a little bit if I were a gay uh, barrister, more than a gay writer or a gay actor or something of that kind. You know, there was always the kind of nod to the social ladies' guild. Well, yes, he's gay, but you know, he is a barrister. Well, yeah, there's especially weight, there's in a, weight behind that job. Right, there's weight and aspiration. You come from a Jewish working class community, those are the jobs, right? That's what yeah. you want to do. You've got out and look, you know, social capital and kudos. And, you know, we're now up the road playing with the Nigerian doctor's families. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We're in the big house. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge deal from those, especially the, the, these middle class communities. That's at the kind of often the kind of toxic epicenter of it all. This reach for that stuff. So that that's that's what happens. Well, I ended up becoming a barrister without really having ever seen court. And I, I ever said when people listen to that now, it is so unthinkable. We have four hundred applicants, sometimes five hundred. We take two a year as wow. pupils. 
I'm right. And they're amazing and brilliant. They've done such extraordinary things to just to get there. And also in 70 grand's worth of debt, you know, I was in 1200. And, um, what, you know, when you first start, I, I went to a sort of criminal chambers. Head of Chambers was a chief war crimes prosecutor in Sierra Leone, but that wasn't my work. I went there for that reason, you know. I was just doing run-of-the-mill criminal cases. And again, because it was a different time, a time when legal aid was really present and pervasive, so people had meaningful access to representation, um, which is tragically now dwindling and disappearing and beyond the reach of many people except the most privileged. Um, You know, I used to be... Again, it's so annoying that we're privileged to be taken by others and overused and diluted. Let's just call it what it is, the people that have got the best access to network. In other words, people that can look mm. through their phones and find someone that can solve their problem. Yeah. But back then, I used to take whatever work I could get, right? And as a rule at the bar, which is a very interesting one, and one that's perhaps not necessarily known as well as it should be by the general public, called the cab rank rule. Interesting, because my dad was a taxi driver. Um and it means you have to take whatever case you were given. You had no right to um, return a case, as it's called, because of your political point of view. You didn't make the decision. Your job was to represent the person, stand between the individual and the state, because that really matters. And, and if you don't understand why that matters, there's a moment, I think, that you, or, or, or if you're listening to this and you're troubled by why that's a thing, and I think it's a really important wake-up moment for you to think about what democracy is and what the rule of law is and why it matters. You know, the idea that somebody can take your freedom, the state can take your freedom, and there's no one to stand up for you in between that power and you is a really important thing for us to reflect on and I think to feel um, proud of because that's the thing. That's the golden thing that people fought and and continue across the world to die for. But I wasn't thinking about it much back then because, you know, I was representing back-to-back shoplifters, you know, many of whom, you know, would uh, leave court after, I mean, I've rarely got them acquitted, but from time to time they'd go and, you know, say thank you by stealing me a box of chocolates from Marks and Spencers. But uh, on one occasion, and this is really the story, right, you never know. Again, these sort of things that happen to you that you're so rarely present that then later in life you end up doing this weird, different job, sort of mad, crazy paving of a life that leads you into something else. And I remember representing these members of the what was then the National Front, and they were being harassed by the police, no doubt about it. And um, you know they were being prosecuted for um, some sort of public order offence. Now, some people listening to this may felt a little bit in their stomach going, yeah, quite glad that they were harassed by the police. Blooming well deserved it. No. It's you next, if that's how you feel about it. And, and, and that's a value that we need to reassess within ourselves every day. Because there is a sense where you look at that and you go, yeah, quite glad that uh, the state's on them. The point was that I showed up one day to represent them family and they said to me oh we're really glad you're here i don't think he spoke like that but in my head he does you know he said oh because all they do is send me and i'm going to use this language so like trigger warning for anyone out there but you know he said to me all they do is send me uh yids and queers 
Like it took every sort of oh, facet no. of my existence to not to sort of, you know, do some camp version of Oi Bay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, you speak like church. You're really glad we haven't said you. I was like, really? Anyway, the point about it wasn't so much the case, although, again, we come back to why that mattered. It was, it was much richer than that, which was, it was a moment that made me a barrister actually in two ways. Firstly, and a person. The person aspect of it, again, that's not eloquently described, but I, I'll try and explain it. And it didn't, didn't make sense until I ended up, in, in I suppose, randomly in a public sphere. Is that, um, you know, these were never happy humans. And by unhappiness, you need to see it. And one of the tragedies of social media is that this keyboard anonymous warrioring doesn't just put distance between the victim of the language that this particular person deploys. You can't see or know them. You can't look into the abyss of this person's life. And I always say to you, this family that I was representing, you know, they had residual energy in their life to invest in hate. Now, I don't know anybody within my immediate circle, I think even in my outer circle, to be honest, that, you know, once they've dealt with the kids or dealt with what it is they've got to do with that day or been to the get the shopping, whatever it is, that has any emotional capital left to go on social media and write something nasty. I actually don't know that person, but I have met them. And I can see, or rather I can tell you or share with you perhaps, that this was like a sea of human debris. This was the abyss of unhappiness. There was no joy in anything they did, you know, this residual capital, in this case, this investment into what were then certainly and, and remain now this kind of politics of hate and anger and rage had nothing but cost at it, nothing but this sort of swirling toxicity. You know, what I mean? there was no joy sitting around, we were having a laugh, oh, it's yeah. great, you know. Mm. Because that was where they chose to invest in it. And, and, yeah. and you see the face of that. And once you've known what that is, and you've been perhaps a recipient of somebody's vile hate, you go, oh, and it, I know it sounds good, but you go, poor love. There's a spiritual component to it. It's why sort of uh, perhaps some of the Christian message endures with such rich kind of perpetuity because you go, hang on a minute. You know, I just forgive you. I love you yeah. because look at you. Yeah. I mean, you know, if people could see the person that written this horrible thing rather than some, you know, um, jazzed up biopic, you know, a picture of a, you know, make humankind more happiness with a cat, you'd go, love, I I've been not hurt by you. So one thing. The second thing was much more kind of important, perhaps, or maybe I don't know, it's more important, but but it it sits within that pyramid of importance. So, you know, my dad, was, my granddad was a Holocaust survivor and doing back to back these cases, only when I started practicing, I suppose I realised, coming back to what I was talking before, that it was really important that I was there for that family. It mattered. It's weird to start a job of that importance and significance of not being imbued with a sort of sense of mission, which nowadays is important. They all are. Mm. Um but that was an epiphany, not just in that case, but several afters where I thought, hang on a second, what I'm actually doing is honouring to some extent. It's much more 
internalize that you don't sit down and go hello i am honoring you know the memory of my as if you're sitting down writing poetry as an homage to my actually you know it, it just emerges where you're going on this is really important and then you have memories right standing with my grandfather the survivor and um, speaker's corner and watching you know people espouse anti-semitic bile but remembering him saying you see in this country this man can say what he wants I use this metaphor, but it's true. When you've stood alongside somebody that has truly touched the face of tyranny, sisters have been murdered, youngest seven, and parents, brother, under unmarked dirt, right? And they go, oh, yeah, but the value is that. And they might take that value away. And this is what freedom is. And this is its point. And then they say nothing about it, but just walk you away. And maybe you're in court and however small the case, you're standing between the state and whatever guys that's formed and that individual. You go, yeah, okay, I get it now. It, it matters. But it all happened afterwards. I didn't go into it with that sense of purpose. It's not very me. I go up going, right, where am I? What am I wearing? You know what I mean? It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, was so was there was it something like that? Was there like, cases like that 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 started to make you have that gravitas for the for the role for the job, the vocation? Oh, it's luck, love. I mean, it's all bloody luck. I mean, it's all you know. I no. I mean, I, I ended up. I took it seriously. That mattered, mm-hmm. as every barrister that I know really does. No other way to do it. What I mean is. Um, I had quite a lot of luck early on. To some extent, it's like being an actor, but not in the way that people understand it to be. You know, if you start performing in front of a jury, juries can tell just ordinary people. And ordinary isn't to denigrate. It means that 12 minds alongside each other. It's a fascinating thing. People that work in courts across the spectrum will tell you that generally speaking, overwhelmingly, 12 collective minds from across every tool which kind of get it right so fascinating such a beautiful thing we fail to celebrate not the jury system per se but these 12 minds who don't know you who get to decide on guilt or not guilt that will go through complex facts and alongside one another will really think deeply about stuff and get it right usually it's an amazing thing the point is they'll tell if you're acting mm-hmm. they don't like it you know to some extent it's true of politicians true if you're being an authentic so the reason i say that is, is, is that <coughs> I had, I was not an actor. I, I was doing quite sort of serious work quickly because I was this one solicitor that um, I suppose sort of discovered me. It's a wrong way of describing that. So overstates the case. Do you know what I mean? As if, you know, it's like a Barbara Streisand star is born moment. I love the way I'm making my early career at the bar sound, you know, even camper than it emerged. You know, <laughs> ultimately, it emerged. Yeah. But, but it wasn't that. I mean, I, I, I I was taught and learned. That's a, it's still the case with the job. You sit behind people and just learn. You imbibe their skills and you watch them. It's a fascinating thing now that my friends and colleagues, especially from my terms, are the leading figures at the bar. And you can even watch the way they might move a hand. And the people that I knew 20 years ago, the greats of the bar, you can see, oh, that's a bit of this barrister. Or what he did there was that barrister. It's, it's, wow. it's, it's a lovely thing to watch, actually, for if you're, you know, a real anorak like me or just somebody that, that loves the craft of, 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 of court craft of advocacy and so yeah I, I had a day where i was i think cross-examining 
like a police officer. And I looked really young back then and, you know, had my wig on and the lot. And you could tell if police officer walked in and he went, oh, good, I've got the child today. You know, mm. me, I look. And um, the thing was, you know, I used to, I, I memorise everything I read, right? Real lovely. I go, oh, what a thrill ride. That's so great. Wish I could try sleeping with it. The night. <laughs> the point of that was I cross-examined the police officer. And again, he'd made the mistake of poor love of um, underestimating the human that was asking the question. Me, in this case, he'd come with this instinctive series of, of, of the soft bigotry of low expectation of subconscious bias in my case, because he got us young and a bit rubbish and green by the I knew the case off by heart. Mm. And I was really good at that particular thing because I was taught by the best, right? So poor uh, police officer passed out in the course of the cross-examination. Wow. And uh, right, and this particular um, solicitor was there. And from there, he gave me a series of more important cases um, and that's what happened. And then I ended up doing more serious work. So it's a bit like being spotted, really. And then I moved to my current chambers, wrote a book, that sort of thing. So gradually, but quite quickly for me, the work that I did became increasingly more um, substantive. Um, you know, that that's that's what happened. So I was doing gang cases for the better part of five years. That was my most important big public case, first of all, some girls, young women, we were um, killed outside of hairdressers on New Year's Eve of 2004. Letitia Shakespeare and Charlene Ellis in, in Birmingham. It was Britain's sort of first ever drive-by shooting. And it was a gang case. And then from there, I uh, ended up pretty much only defending in those cases up in Birmingham for the better part of two or three years. And then moved on to more international cases from that point. But, but those three years in Birmingham alongside the gangs, their families, and especially my extraordinary clients taught me so much. I mean, you know, limitless things to learn from them. Well, I was going to ask, actually, about kind of the dealing with the emotions of that. I mean, obviously, you're, if you're working on high-level cases with, you know, and you're, you know, a lead barrister on some of these things, do you, is there an emotional baggage that comes alongside that? I was junior in a lot of these cases, but you're still dealing with all the emotional baggage, yeah. but eventually leading my own cases. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does have a toll. It's only recently that the bar has been even vaguely mindful of it. Mm-hmm. So it's a big question. Um, I'll tell you how quickly you lose the muscle memory. You know, I used to so many long stories I could tell you about this, including, you know, advising a young girl, again, it wouldn't be available as defence now to run a case of duress as a kid with what we would now understand to be SEN. And his mother and I persuaded him to do it, but he had to name a gang, not individuals, but the gang. He came up with a form of algebra. He had guns all over his house. The gang made me do it. Um, and he wasn't afforded any particular protection because he was a defendant in the proceedings, not prosecution witness. Anyway, he called him to give evidence as in... Uh, he would have otherwise got nine years pretty much automatically. That was on the Monday. He was acquitted on the Monday. His mum gave me a call. I became very close friends with him. And, uh, he was shot dead on the Friday. And I know for sure he'd be alive today. I say for sure. It's very likely he would be alive today, but for the advice that I'd given him to give evidence. Or, you know, cases where, you know, in Sierra Leone, where, 
you know, you, you, you see imagery that you will never ever be able to unsee. Colleagues of mine, my best friend uh, at the criminal bar, she's got three kids and she does back-to-back cases of sexual violence. She's a very well-known King's Council. And I was once in chambers recently, not practicing in the field of crime for now probably better part of a decade. And the clock said, oh, you heard about, I say her name because we've talked about it, probably Miss Young's case. And the clerk used a sentence to describe her case. And I said, could you stop? Could you stop? I actually don't want to know any more about it. Yeah. And then funnily enough, I went to her do where she became a silk, as it's called. I was walking around. And, and it, again, this is with you know five years distance, I suppose, or more, a decade's distance from doing this sort of work. I kept meeting these solicitors. And it's a bit like you see on telly. You know, the solicitors sort of serve, the, give the barristers word. It's uh, that's certainly not the case. But, you know. Yeah, they have more today day-to-day dealings with the clerks. They go to excuse me with the clients. They go to well, under the clerks, they go to uh, the police stations, and then the barrister gets the case. I was walking around these groups of solicitors who I knew years ago when I was practicing, and honestly, each story. I was with a friend. That's the point. Often you don't necessarily see it or see it or hear it as loudly or as acutely. The kind of emotional insanity of the work that they do and the fact that there's no or very little kind of emotional thought of what impact this must be having, unless you're alongside somebody that's not in the same job. So I think I took, that's right, I took a mate to this thing, we're walking around, each group of people we walk up to, what do we go? I go, I can't remember, hi, John, how are you doing? You okay? Yeah, I've got to go in a minute, I've got another beheading in Peterborough, been free this month. And then he started to tell me this story of what had happened. And, and it, it got to the end of this story and he carried on drinking his beer and he turned to me and went, I'm really sorry for you. I'm really sorry. Oh, no, mate, you know, it's nice to see you and went off. I did a case that it made me think in, in, in about 2013. No, excuse me, how old am I? No, much. So you've had 2009, excuse me. And um, amongst other things, the children, excuse me, the, the nephew of the killer had been forced to join in the murder. And I can't put it in any, I'm afraid, more detail than that, that the case certainly was reported. Not least because when he was finally acquitted, my client uh, threatened to kill the judge whose father had been murdered by um, somebody that the father had sent to jail. And in that case, you know, I remember just going on to the next thing as if it was nothing. Not really kind of reflecting on it. But that weirdly wasn't what led me to not want to do the job. It, it wasn't that so much, actually. It was that... Um, I was doing these back-to-back cases. My last murder case was at the Old Bailey, and my client had, I think, I think the murder weapon was a dog. You don't need to say anything too much more than that. That was what the murder weapon was. You can extrapolate the rest of the narrative from there. All of the story across the board is littered in human tragedy. 
he's been tragedy across board of every participant, of every family, of every person, both the defendant and the victims, especially the victims, but 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 everybody in that courtroom is hearing this kind of version of trauma. Anyway, that wasn't it, actually. It was that um, I ended up doing lots of these fraud cases, which people don't really talk about, you know, because people are interested in the blood and guts. But often the most endearingly emotionally violent are the fraud cases. The so-called white-collar cases. They have a capacity to interfere with the fabric of our communities in a way that are just not appreciated because no one died. But often the clients in those cases are the ones that perhaps have the ability to change the, uh, to determine the emotional mood in the room much more powerfully than a young person that may have joined a gang and made a series of decisions in their life which they now regret. It's a very different thing from sitting across a table from somebody that may have knowingly chosen to flood the NHS with um, medications worth billions of pounds that they know were not effective or to have set up some sort of tax scheme where they know that deliberately targeting the vulnerable and they billions of it off to have raided a, pro, a, a, a pension fund. I mean, nobody quite considers those wickednesses uh, in the same way. I think that's something we need to reflect on. But uh, I went to prosecute the case abroad, and, and, and that's what started. I, I wrote a little book about money laundering and became a bit of a specialist about that. went to prosecute a case abroad, and um, that case is still ongoing, interestingly. It was, the government had been suspended for corruption on the short of it, and we were there to prosecute the ex-Prime Minister. And it, the, what happened was that rather than, because I only defended in, in, in this country, I started to prosecute. I'm living alongside these cops, many of whom, and I hate this expression, bless them. Or I hate this expression, I ain't being rude or nothing, because that usually follows the being rude. <laughs> or the, oh, yeah, he's a violent fascist, bless him. You know what I mean? You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Or I ain't being rude or nothing, but your boyfriend's a right prick. You know what I mean? You're like, you are. <laughs> you could have that. <laughs> anyway, the point is that... Um, They'd never met anybody like me in many cases. You know, they used to look at me. I, uh, in one occasion, I could feel this bloke, quite senior police officer, like walking back into the corner of the room and me thinking, listen, love, if the world were flooded with pits and you lived in a tree, it wouldn't go near your ass. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, listen, you know, again, it comes back to those moments in my early career, which to say, and I must emphasize, these are ex-police officers that are not currently serving. So long time ago, I thought, so if you're not, give me three weeks. In other words, that these officers, this was with this was a real gift of a teaching opportunity for, for us both. It's always a chance, right? There's a chance, like an actual opportunity here. Um, I said, we'll have three weeks. I'm, I'm, I'm in a sort of managerial position here. I'm young, young 30. I'm if at the end of that three weeks you are evaluating or I can see you're doing it by virtue of what I can do rather than your prejudice, we're going to be fine. Yeah. And we're going to grow alongside one another. This is going to be good. If not, we've got a problem. And 
I'm afraid to say it's extremely likely, not likely, it is inevitable you will lose. And in every case but one, in every case, we sort of fell in love. And it changed both of us, you know, I say both of us, all of us, you know. Sadly, I've gone to a number of their funerals because a lot of police officers, especially from that generation, frankly, don't live very long after they retire. And um, it was an amazing experience. And I built a case. It was the first time I'd done that and then subsequently continued to do that work. And building a case like building a Jenga game, you know. But my job in London, excuse me, in London, chiefly London, but in this country when I was a defence barrister was, and I'm emphasising it not so much in violent crimes, it's different to a degree, but the type of work I was practising, fraud and money laundering, was to pull out the one bit of the Jenga game to bring the whole thing crashing down technical issues of law chai luck still day doing you know and i come back to the uk and i went to to doing that to do a case whilst this foreign case was on hiatus and it was in croydon and hello lovely listeners in croydon but blimineck did it make me depressed it's the architecture i'm sorry but it is <laughs> um and i was defending this guy uh who was um accused of a, a really quite terrible event, actually. One of the worst, actually. He was a, a human trafficker and a fraudster. Now, again, we use that language, but it rarely gets press headlines. Too complex, too difficult, too ugly, perhaps. But it's not murder, right? And I realised, as he was instructing me, that was my job, to pull out the little bits of the Jenga game, that I just couldn't do it. I stopped believing in it. I didn't want to be there anymore. And that is a really big problem. Thankfully, I had co-counsel, so I was still doing my very best, but I, I became profoundly depressed, and I use that word on purpose. It's not a word that we should throw about, right? Yeah. Say, write this off and do it. I'm like, let's be careful about that. Are you sad? Are you... I was I was depressed, trapped because I by that stage got a reputation and some financial safety, not much but some, and there I am trapped. I'm trapped in this thing that I don't not only um, not love but actively dislike. And coming back to this idea of you having finite emotional currency and you're there like little bits of a bank doesn't need to be perfect all the time. Mm. It doesn't need to be full. Often the time you might get down to your last quid. I woke up every morning just bankrupt, bankrupt, empty. And then having to get up, go to Croydon and defend in this case. And I was absolutely spent. And then it, it, in that place of emptiness, what you then do, I say you, what I, I, I then did was sort of think, well, there's no value in any of this stuff. It's all a kind of meaningless, purposeless abyss. And in any event, much like the Shelley poem, Ozymandias, in 5,000 years' time, it's all going to be dust in the freaking sand anyway. So here I am contributing to this meaningless abyss, and my contribution is to this. What's the point? It's like somehow being plugged into meaninglessness or, or to be less poetic, you know, the never-ending story's nothingness. You know, let's see, and it's that. And you, unless you've sap contained asphyxiated in that darkness it's impossible 
poetically or otherwise to share with another person what that means. And then on or around that moment, something else came along. It changed my life completely by luck. The universe, you might say, conspiring to assist me ending up on telly. Random series of events. But boy, was I blooming depressed doing what I couldn't do it anymore. Um, that sort of work. So something came at the right time. The universe yeah, sort of gave well, you something when you needed it. Totally, randomly. But you know, something would have changed anyway. What I needed to remember was that that was just today. I was mm-hmm. feeling that, but that case would be over. That I did have agency. I just needed to look around me and go, none of this stuff, Matt. I could get rid of some of this stuff. Recapture the power. What was making me happy? What mattered to me? Was actually, I felt I had no freedom thing no freedom to change what i was doing yeah you know stuck of course i've got to do the next case because what mm. what did i chase it i was going to be a king's counsel i wanted to go to the high court i mean thought, yeah, of course um and actually it was i'm sure no am i sure no that's not true that's not true i i feel as confident as i can that i would have eventually clawed my way out of that quicksand but on around that time something randomly came around which was that um i'd written all of these ropey scripts whilst i was abroad i know they're bad because i went to flog them to this woman and i didn't know who she was and when i don't care who i don't like for me i'm just delighted to meet everybody as long as they themselves think that they're interesting i'm thrilled you know or, or they're curious about anything it's fine you know uh, and she was really funny and great. Anyway, I flogged this script. She said, the worst thing she's ever read. And, um, <laughs> oh, no. It was a sort of, I would describe it as sort of aggressively undivided indifferent. I mean, she said it was proper shit. But I really liked that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, as long yeah. as it said with it, just an element, an edge of love. Yeah, yeah, you, know you need I mean? that. You need a pinch of like love a bit, in there. Yeah, a pinch of love that comes from sort of a place that's sort of funny or a bit like, yeah. you know isn't doing it or, or she really believes it's really shit. Then I'm in. Yeah, yeah. She's not doing it because it's sort of some part of some repartee or because she wants to be some sort of 2000s version of Dorothy Parker. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's she really thinks it's shit. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, that's funny and real. It's real, real yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real. And, and, and that's so, so it really made me laugh. Anyway, long and short was uh, she turned out to be the head of ITV Daytime and I didn't know, I genuinely didn't know. And she said, would you like to do this court TV thing? Uh, they're not interviewing anybody, not met anybody. There's a bloke that's vaguely interested, uh, in, me, interested in doing a, um, a court show. I went, yeah, sounds like heaven. I've met the bloke, didn't think anything more of it because it's television. Mm, yeah. And very quickly I realised within television that it is, in many respects, um, you know, I used to represent sociopaths and psychopaths. Very rare, very rare to meet that, to, to be in the presence of it. And boy, do you know when you are. Again, all of these overused terms because they feature on the internet. They actually, you know, go and spend a little bit of time if you ever get the unhappy chance to be alongside somebody who has that tragic affliction and you'll know. But I'll tell you, I've seen it more in telly than I ever did sitting across the table from people at Belmont. You know, mm, and yeah. the thing about them is that they started talking. I was like, I don't trust any of this. Basically, what's happening here is that a bunch of people in a meeting 
one of them's making the decision. The rest of them are sort of saying things. So they feel inculcated in the decision making in case things go right. But if they go wrong, they're also saying things to invest themselves in the Right, but when we were, I was like, "What I used to do, mate? I used to do fraud cases." Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can read the room. So, yeah. Right, I read the room and go, "Yeah, right." But actually, it turns out the people, and again, pure chance that I was dealing with, were, were really doers. They were all decision makers. I was just lucky. I thought nothing of it, though. I genuinely did nothing. In fact, I just heard the noise of the woman I'm about to tell you a story. She just left my house. Been ten years. Uh, she's staying down with me. She's producing something else at America. I went, I took a job in Jersey. Um, there was an independent care inquiry to historic child abuse there. And uh, one of the concerns they had was that the government, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to be concerned about uh, because they're in the same building as a prosecution, wouldn't necessarily hand over all the material to the right. inquiry. So they'd appoint independent counsel. So that's what I was doing, right? I was uh, effectively advising the government of jersey making sure that they handed over all of the stuff it's quite a difficult complex and nuanced job then i flew over to manchester and bear in mind this i didn't believe any of this shit was going to happen next thing i saw a court in my neck i'm like texting friends taking i don't think there were selfies there but getting them to take photos of me look at me in my courtroom case one now these are arbitrations that case one a woman suing her wedding photographer i think you know, I immediately say, well, I'm very glad you bought your uh, mum to court. That's my sister. You know, Jesus Christ. Case <laughs> two, in very much the woman that crafted this show, very much how complex it was, because it's real cases, because yeah. they were regulated and are regulated by Ofcom, so consequently can't say anything that's going to interfere with the integrity of the judgment. Just happened to be one of the best producers in the business, Kate Broadhurst. She's from the black country. And that means I'm not allowed to say anything in my ear which is going to interfere with anything I decide at the end of the case, and I have to give full judgment. Yeah. And so case two, I say, something like, oh, I don't know, this case, bear in mind my cases that I've been dealing with up to this point for the last three years to, leading to that moment are worth billions of pounds and millions. So I was like, oh, this case is worth £100, say, to I, I to John and Jane. Like, £100. I said, that's not a lot of money, say I. I get this voice with <laughs> Uh, do you want to rephrase that? You sound like a ride posh ticket. <laughs> I was like, she's just like, I was like, I love you. I just left the house. She's just like, right. Uh, um, the, the point about it was, it it taught me everything in that moment. And then, you know, two and a half thousand cases on or thereabouts. I'm doing those cases. And again, of course, some of them have a thin veneer of pantomime, you know, when a goat eats the contents of a woman's handbag. Right, and I get a message in my ear because they don't tell me on purpose just to annoy me. Okay, uh, the goat's coming into court. <laughs> oh, <no>. The <laughs> goat comes in and shits all over the floor. Oh, yeah, gosh. good TV. Though. The rest, <laughs> it is good TV, but the rest of the time, you know, we're dealing with human conflict. But at the heart of it, I part of the reason that it's endured, and, and, and I don't think has suffered perhaps the same criticism as other other shows in the reality space. Before each morning session would have four cases the afternoon might have four cases or thereabouts sometimes less there's a tiny audience so i would go and speak to them always from day one they're an especially good person but it mattered to me we would talk about the law we were going to be looking at that day and they should be looking out for it don't forget they cut the case sometimes at 15 minutes to an hour and you might see 15 we would i would make a point 
and we would talk sometimes to each other about human dignity. Um, I would stop the case if I felt, which never happened, maybe, well, actually, I don't mean it did happen, if I felt that they were laughing at somebody mm-hmm. or, or asked the cameras to be stopped. Um, you know, oftentimes we go, look, I just imagine the cameras aren't here. Because in the vast majority of cases, we're dealing with families whose relationships are toxically broken down. That word toxic, such a useful word. It, 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 they bro- often not over the subject of the litigation of the dispute, but because they just failed adequately to hear one another, to hear one another. So this is the first time, sometimes in years, where they'd been conscripted to be in a space and you just don't have the emotional choreography you know what to do when you're so full of anger in that situation. Sometimes the court formal rules can be useful in that space, in that situation. So, you know, a win, if you like, for us is where, because there are rules and they're forced to hear one another, sometimes, more often than you would think, it was the first opportunity each party had had to go, you know, when you didn't pay me this money back, it's not about the money because I'm alive and I'm okay, I'm healthy sometimes this is how it made me feel it's what it did to me when you instead of giving me the money went on holiday and i saw it on facebook i felt you didn't value me yeah and that really hurt and i need you to hear it and i've said it now i need to be in the place and again we come back all this way full circle to looking at the face of social media who are the people behind it mm. i need to see in your eyes in your face in your being, in your presence, in this, whatever it is, I need to know that you've understood how I felt about it. And in those moments, or after those cases, perhaps a better way of describing it, often, really often, I can't tell you because it's rare that I would personally follow up, you know, you'd have a moment of genuine healing. They'd like hug each other. I can't tell you whether it lasted. I don't. But I will tell you, those are the moments that you can palatably feel in the room. Yeah. Not just a sense of human connection, but it felt like that that was something of real value, more than value. People were delighted to be near it. It mattered. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm going back to the empathy again. You know, we're going back to that empathy. That's why you're so good at what you do. Empathetic with the crowd, uh, the audience, you know, and your empathy to these people going through these, even if it does seem like small cases, they're important to them and they matter. I don't know. If it's, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm, it's really interesting. I would like to be, I, I don't really do that many, many podcasts, but I would never like to know what the questions are or to listen, but so it's quite important to kind of have a, a reaction that feels totally honest, real, and authentic when I'm asked questions like that, or when you make a statement. Yeah. I've been at meetings in America and stuff. They oh, think about Europe. You're the best. But I can feel my toes curling. Yeah. <laughs> Please stop talking. And, and, and I have that same reaction when when you describe me as empathetic. I think that's true to a degree. I think what's more important though is that, despite me gabbing on is that um, I think part of empathy is, is, is learning to hear better. 
and, and, and doing your best to construct the spaces around you where people feel safe enough to be heard and valued. And, and empathy is all very well and important, but you can't get there unless that's a starting point. So somebody who might be an unhoused person, what sort of empathy can I do? You know, I've got the gift of, God forbid, you know, I've got my mum and a house and family. I, can, I, I can't imagine being unhoused or without friends. And that stuff. So I can, can I empathise? Can I empathise with people that I used to, case I used to deal with, or genocide? Can, can I empathise with that? Should I, I don't know. I, I, I can sit and listen to you. And I think not so much empathise, but I can hope create a space where you know that I'm hearing you. Yeah. And, and and I wonder the extent to which that's slightly different. I don't know. I appreciate that answer. I really, I really do. Well, but it's yeah. been so anyway, lovely yeah, to talk sorry. to you. Uh, and and right. I know we've taken up an awful lot of your time. And this is no, no, I'm just. This is the best thing. I'm trying to not write my novel. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've I'm got one further question, the, actually. Um, oh, thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like literally looking at the business and go, oh, God, don't make me start. <laughs> I know that feeling very, very well. I like procrastinating. Over what do you do in the day to make you happy? What do you do in the day to make you happy? Because you're about to have, uh, 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 Jim's about to have a baby. Yeah. So, you know, you can't, you, you're not doing anything in the day. That's You know, you don't know what's good. Yeah. No. Like I'm going fit. I'm going fitness dancing at twelve forty-five. Fitness dancing, oh, cool. okay. Is that sort of like? That you, is that like a sort of salsa type thing? How does that work? No, it's just joy in dance form. <laughs> okay, That's I've taken great. honestly. I've taken so many people. But anyway, but like high court judges, you name it, they're all basically like different forms of Tony Adams on Strictly. <laughs> I love that he did his um, truck from a training. Oh my god! That was so I want the problem is with things. I wanted to give him a great big cuddle at the end of it because you know the thing about being on Strictly is that you know it, it, if you're not a natural dancer, and I'm afraid to say, I'm afraid to say it isn't what it used to be. You know, when it started like 20 years ago, it's the actual people that had never danced. Mm, yeah. Right. So these days, when you, I, I walked in when I first day, it was like a s- scene from fame, you know, they all really let, and Greg Rutherford, I'm still really close to, walked up to him, goes, blooming neck, you know, we need to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. um, so please, if you're not, an, right, exactly. If you're not a natural dancer, you need to, <laughs> you need to embrace it. Yeah. But it was really interesting because I, I only watch it on YouTube, but he, I, I'm really sort of, proud insofar as you can be proud of a stranger you know in the truest full complete sense of what i think you can but but look, proud of the fact that you know he's talking really openly about his recovery and stuff mm. like, that's great and stuff yeah but then if you're going to be you know part of that is finding this sort of join yourself go out there and go eff it yeah, yeah. i'm really this is not my thing but come on yeah do you know i, I feel like i don't know what's going on but i wonder about the humans around it that are going to hold him enough to go, go out, live yeah. your best life, have your best time. No one died. You know what I mean? That's uh, <laughs> Anyway, what you can ask. Oh, yeah. So from I'm going, I'm going fitness dancing and it's joy. And it's like 19, because I don't know what happened after 1899, really, like music-wise. <laughs> okay. So you have this amazing drag queen that will sometimes take the class. And it's like, now go, and I've obviously discovered who Beyonce is. Please be a bomb her. <laughs> I know Lizzo. I'm obsessed with Lizzo. Like, want to marry her. 
I met uh, anyway. But other than that, it's just like it's joy. Oh, it's sounds wicked. amazing. That sound good. Yeah, I might have to come come along one time. Um, you should come to Share Aerobics, Charles. Share Aerobics. Yeah, that's quite niche. Okay. Explain explain Share Aerobics to us. To the music of Share. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, perfect. I thought it was like something where you you do an exercise and then you would share something about your life or you know like, no, it was, no, <laughs> like no. some sort of like you know like it was a kind of therapy and exercise session you know. Well, it is that, but you also get to do a bit of jazz hands. Do do you believe in life after love? <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. No, my question was I, I was going oh, to yeah, ask you sorry. um slightly back on the sort of crime thing really, and I. Yeah, and, and it might not be one you can answer very quickly, but I do wonder, like, why we um, in the public uh, are inherently kind of fascinated with crime. You know, we you know. I think true crime podcasts and yeah. obviously TV shows yeah. and everything we've seen, like Netflix doing lots of true crime stuff. We there's a there's a thirst for crime, and and I think particularly true crime. I mean, there's the kind of shallow answer and the deeper one, and the deeper one, the answer is yeah. I, there's a, um, a brilliant bit in, is it Neil Simon's play, Biloxi Blues, and one of the characters says, I want to be a writer. What do you reckon I should read? And he says, the entire third floor of the New York Library. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's such a... So I guess the the, the, the shallow answer is... Which um, is not shallow at all. God, look at me. Uh, you know, Hitchcock, Hitchcock describes, you know, l- drama as life with the dull bits cut out. Mm. didn't he and and you know there's nothing more intense and dramatic than um crime and especially murder and secondly and perhaps the the more complex answer is that we all invite or ask questions within ourselves about our capacity for good and most especially for badness and i always shy away from the word evil because once you've used that word you've slung the person in the bin it, it, it's a mic drop word you don't have to do any of the rest of the work mm. of, of of how they've come to be always evil it takes it it, it, it it the word evil rids the person of humanity it's like calling someone a monster and often when people are killed by the state um otherwise known as capital punishment, the language that you'll hear swirling around that particular human being will be, well, they were a monster. In which case, you don't have to deal with any of the other issues around it. The, the, the answer to that is every person in a relationship, you know, you're married and you've got babies crying and you've got, you know, no sleep and you live in the world and you're in a car and all of the stuff that goes on in your world... There are various moments in your day where you go, I really want to kill someone. And if you haven't been in a relationship with somebody going, and it's so important, we have to be so careful using this language, where, of course, it's not about doing violence, right? I go, I really just want to throw a shoe at your head right now. Right. I worry about you if you haven't felt that urge. To want to throw a shoe at something to, to me, and then that's that, that that sense within ourselves of wanting to think. Oh, a, it's dramatic. B, it's that question about could we do this? What would we do? And there's also other elements about it, which is you know the writing of people like I suppose Agatha Christie being the most articulate expression of it. We also like problem solving, mm. 
And in the course of a lot of these dramas you're talking about, it's the, have they got the right person? It's that, it's the sense of, it's Scooby-Doo, you know, it's it's everything from Scooby-Doo to Agatha Christie to, to Proust, um, to some extent. Got the lot, right? Problem solving, it asks about, could I kill someone? Do I connect with that idea that I could do something truly wicked? And also because it's life with the dull bits cut out. Mm. You know, in a trial, for instance, a murder trial, you know, people often come and they used to watch me. I always shove up at the bit where I was spending two days cross-examining somebody about where a, 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 a excuse me, a, um, what's it called? A, a mobile phone mask might be. A sick there in a co- the drama in a, in a trial is about half an hour, mm. maybe half a day if, you, if you're lucky in a court case. Not um, so it's got all of that stuff. Although a lot of those dramas I can't bear watching, you know. Making of a murderer. Terrible. Whole conversation for another time. <laughs> I'm trying to write a novel at the moment. It's uh, bloody hard. It's been a joy having you on. Anyway, it's <laughs> been a joy to speak to you. Good luck with your. Are you going to get in the birthing pool? I'm really interested in this. Um, I, I, do you know what? I hadn't thought about that until the other day, and someone else suggested it. No, I, I saw a couple of videos, birthing videos, and the partner was. You've been there, watching so... birthing videos. Yeah, it's okay. a way of like getting. Yeah, so oh, you're not too why don't you watch? Why no, wouldn't you yeah. watch birthing videos? Like, how else it's, do you know what to I, wear? Well, <laughs> I just think it would be quite an intimate thing. I don't know people. Well, I guess people do share. People that like kind sharing of stuff. them because yeah. it's empowering. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess to answer the question, like, I might do. I'm open to it. We'll see what happens. It's quite a funny thing, though, Jack. It's quite an intimate thing. They're having a baby together. Well, no, no. I mean, I've, 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 I've been in that room, like, with my kids, been when my kids were born. But um, it's like the, the pool thing is it makes it, because, you know, being in a pool is quite more, more of a leisurely thing, I think, rather than being in a hospital bed, for example. So, well, they, the, so there's, a, there's a crossover there. They're not the six senses. They've got basically, like... Not a leisure centre. <laughs> no, no, no. no, that's a bit where the baby's coming out of, as far as I can gather. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, anyway, Rob, thank it's you so been much. A joy. Oh, yeah, thank you love. so much. Thank you so so Enjoy. much. Yeah, yeah, honestly, it's an absolute pleasure Sorry, to talk to you. Sorry, I've been banging on. Not at all. No, you have not been right, banging on I mean, at all. No, it's I've been, been looking. No. I don't want to write. Don't make me write. <laughs> no, it's been <laughs> fascinating. Thank you. Enjoy. Yeah, uh, enjoy fitness dancing. Okay. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. See. Rob Rinder on the Blank Podcast. What an epic episode. That was my word. So many takeaways, so many great moments, incredible stories, and just an incredible person as well. Um, really, really enjoyed it. Really appreciate Rob's time and candidness and honesty and 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 you know, going to places really sometimes throughout that I think were probably quite hard. You know, he got choked up at one point, and I think they were probably quite hard to revisit sometimes. And I do think that a lot of people that work in sort of criminal law, um, that it must be quite difficult sometimes. And you asked the question about taking work home with you and stuff so really appreciate him going to those places the thing i was going to say at the start of the show was i really liked a bit when he's talking about uh judge rinder the the tv show and how it was although the cases might seem small and the, the, the money's involved might have been 100 quid here and there it was about 
people listening to each other and giving them the opportunity to be heard, which I think has come up on the podcast before. It's kind of, I think it's almost like something we all strive for as human beings. Mm. And I just thought that was really lovely, really interesting that actually that's what the show, the crux of the show, there's a lot of pantomime around it, of course, but like that's what the crux of the show boiled down to. And I just thought that was a really, really interesting thing to hear. And it made me realize how seriously he takes obviously all his work, be it barrister work or TV work or anything he does. And I just thought that was really important. So yeah, great episode. Yeah. And he obviously talked about the trying to make sure that the show is authentic, you know, talking to the audience before to give them yeah. the, the rules of law to explain what was going to happen and, and why he made certain judgments and stuff. And that, that authenticity, I think, was is vital, really, particularly in a show like that. So to take away some of that, like you said, about the pantomime elements of it and yeah. to make people really understand that, you know, like you say, they're real, real cases and real judgments. Uh, and that's, you know, that's credit to Rob for not wanting to do anything half-hearted and to actually yeah. respect his vocation, which is, you know, um, and, and his love of law and, and what law does for us as a, as a, um, a democratic society. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely. So I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, what a great episode and cannot thank Rob enough for, for coming on. And I'm sure this is an episode that's going to resonate with our listeners. So if you've enjoyed it today or, or anything's jumped out at you and, you've taken away bits from it please do get in contact with us and let us know we might even read it out on future episodes um our contact details well we're on twitter instagram and facebook all with the same handle which is uh, at blank pod it is i was trying to remember it but i call it from we'll call it into my memory yeah <laughs> at blank pod um and of course didn't mention this in part one but of course um if you're listening on the public feed there is extra content with Robert, which we have every episode with all our guests at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash blank podcast. Obviously, if listening on the, on the Patreon feed now, you'll have heard it. And thank you very much for being part yeah, of our sign up. community. But if you haven't, please do, because every single word from Rob was amazing on this episode. So you won't want to miss a single second. So there's an extra extra bonus content at, for, uh, with Rob at patreon.com slash blank podcast. So please do sign up. It's so kind, aren't we? <laughs> just, we're just, just giving, a, giving back. We're just giving back, giving back for, for a that's small monetary benefit. <laughs> exactly. That's fair. That's fair. Anyway, I think that wraps up this week's episode, Charles. It's been a, an epic one. It has been an epic one and it's been great. And I've been, like I said, wanting to get Rob on for ages. So it's really great to have him on. And uh, yeah, what a great individual and really look forward to seeing what he does next. Absolutely. We wish Rob all the best, all and all the love in the world with everything he does, including writing that book as well yeah. so uh, i'm sure it will all be okay uh but yeah all the love in the world to him and you know all the love to our listeners as well thank you so much whether you're a patron who we love loads or or listening on the public feed thanks we, we so much for slightly less slightly less but i'd say about four pound a month less yeah um, then what would that be percentage wise though four percent i don't know i don't know four percent Okay, yeah, yeah. That's about right. So we, so we, like, we love 4% you 4% less. Yeah, then join up to yeah. Patreon to get the full 100%. Um, no, thank you so much for choosing. <laughs> yeah, really, so, yeah thank, the listeners that are listening on the public feed, we love you 96%. Yeah, oh, that's not bad still. But it's pretty good. It's pretty high, yeah. Four at Patreon.com. Mm. Anyway, uh, no, thank you for choosing to listen to this episode. And uh, we're back next week. Same time, same place with another episode on the Blank Podcast. Until then, Giles, take care, mate. And you, Jim. Have a good one. You don't get cancelled. Yeah, I was going to say it. You got in there. <laughs> <laughs>
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.